Father, this morning I pray as we enter into this time of opening your word and learning from it, uh, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, uh, Lord, help us to have a posture of learning, uh, to become a student and to learn what your word says. And Lord, help us to understand what your word has to say. Lord, we recognize that these times of preaching, they're, they're not about uh, what I have to say. It's, it's not about um, uh, different thoughts or, or, or insights that I want to share. Lord, this time is about hearing from you. It's about reading your word, learning from your word, and seeking to apply that to our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that as I speak from your word, you would help me to speak in such a way that is tethered to the Bible. And Lord, I pray that we would learn uh, from it this morning. And Lord, I pray specifically that you would continue to illuminate our hearts and our minds to the unity and the sufficiency of your word that you have given us in the Bible. So, Lord, Help us in that way this morning. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, so this morning, we're, we're going to continue in our summer study of the doctrine of the Word of God. We've been doing this. This is part seven of going through this sermon series, really asking, what is the Bible um, how did we get the Bible, and how should we read the Bible? So that's, that's what we've been working through. So all of those previous messages are on our website and our podcast. So if you've missed those, I really commend them to you. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to do one more sermon uh, that is designed to teach us that the Bible, the whole thing, so the 66 books of the Bible are a unified whole that tells one story about God's redemption of us, his people, in and through Jesus. That every single passage, every verse in the Bible points to that story of redemption. And that fact actually helps us interpret parts of the Bible that we find to be difficult. So two weeks ago, we practiced this by looking at how the Bible is one unified story and how that helps us to interpret and read the Old Testament law, which can be a difficult place in the Bible to read. And so if you missed that, you can find that online as well. But this morning, what I wanted to do is grab another difficult set of passages, really, um, grab a difficult topic that the Bible addresses and see how the fact that the Bible is one unified whole helps us to interpret those passages. So the, the topic that I chose for this morning is, is the one topic that many critics of the Bible say is the Bible's one devastating flaw. Many critics of the Bible say that this is the primary stain in the Bible. And that is the Bible's apparent condoning of the institution of slavery. Does the Bible condone slavery? All right, so light topic for us this morning. 
And the reason why I want to teach on this is because, again, many people accuse the Bible of condoning the institution of slavery. And so what I want to show us this morning is that when we see our Bibles as one unified whole, pointing to the story of God's redemption in and through Jesus, we are going to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually the most powerful anti-slavery force in the world. Okay, so here's the plan. Here's how we're going to do this. All right, we all got to put our our thinking hats on this morning. First, what we're going to do is take an honest look at what the Bible actually has to say about slavery. And we're going to try to think about that within its own historical context when the Bible was written. Once we do that, I think we'll have some answers, but I also think we'll have some more questions. So then, secondly, what we're going to do is we're going to apply some biblical theology, okay? So I want you to say that out loud. Say biblical theology, all right? Say it. Thank you, all right? What I mean when I say we're going to apply biblical theology to this topic, what I mean by that is that we are going to see how the unfolding story of God's redemption in and through Christ helps us to rightly interpret these passages Um, that refer to slavery. And as I said to you, I think what we'll see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful anti-slavery force uh, in the world. All right, so we gotta jump in. I got a lot to cover, so we're gonna jump in. What does the Bible actually say about slavery? Well, in the Old Testament, um, we have the Hebrew word ebed, which means slave or servant. Uh, In the New Testament, we have the Greek word doulos, which means slave, or the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. It's where we actually get the word deacon. In both these languages, Hebrew and Greek, these words are used in all sorts of various situations in context, both positive and negative, all right? So an example, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, we see that Hebrew word ebed in a negative way. It says this, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery, there's our word, came up to God. So this is using it in a negative way. Slavery as we think about it today. We also see the word ebed used in a positive way. A famous verse, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants, there's that word ebed, of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So this is a positive way of using that word as referring to us as servants of God. We see the same kind of uses in the New Testament, for the word doulos, which means slave. So Titus chapter 2, verse 9, we see Paul use it to refer to an actual slave, or sometimes it's translated bondservant, same thing. That says bondservant, slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. But Paul also uses that same word, doulos, to call himself a bondservant of God, of, of Christ, Like the first verse of Titus, Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God, that's that word doulos, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So 
I run through all those words for you this morning because I want you to see from the beginning that the morality of someone being a slave or a servant in the scriptures is highly dependent on the context. Uh, Romans chapter 6 is a great example of this. Um, Romans chapter 6 verse 20 says, For when you were slaves, there's our word doulos, of sin... You were free in regards to righteousness. So Paul is saying that before our sins were forgiven on the cross, we were enslaved by sin, and sin is a terrible master. But look at Romans chapter 6, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves, there's our word, of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So same word, same meaning. We're enslaved to something, but what has changed is who we're enslaved to. Because of Jesus, we're no longer enslaved by sin, but we are now enslaved by God. Maybe a better way to put it is sin is no longer our master, but God is now our master. All right, so here's the point. The idea of being enslaved by something is considered a good thing or a bad thing based on who or what we are enslaved to. When sin is our master, it leads to death. When God is our master, it leads to life. And so as we look into what the Bible says about slavery, we have to understand this, that the morality of these words in the Bible is entirely judged by the conduct and the intentions of the master. So when Paul calls himself a slave to Christ, that's a good thing. When the Old Testament recounts the time when the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, that's a bad thing. So I want to repeat this. In the Bible, the morality of these words that are translated to mean slave or servant are entirely judged by the conduct and the intentions of the master. So with that said... What does the Bible actually say when it uses these words in reference to a slave who is owned or controlled by another person as a master? Okay, that context. So we'll do an honest look at this. In the Old Testament, we have laws that govern the conduct of slave masters. So in Exodus chapter 21, verse 2, one slave must work for six years. On the seventh year, it must be released that slave must be released and freed. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 15, if a slave escapes his master and comes to you, you are not to give that slave up back to their master. You have to let them stay on the run. Uh, In Job chapter 31, verses 13 to 15, the Bible affirms the equal dignity and value of a slave and his master. Uh, Look at this, verses 13 to 15. It says, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, my slaves, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Lastly, in Jeremiah chapter 34 
God is explaining to his people why he let them get defeated by the Babylonians and sent into exile. We've talked about this a lot over the last several weeks, this period of time when the nation of Israel was in exile because God kicked them out of the promised land. And one of the reasons God gives them in Jeremiah 34 verse 14 is because they mistreated and oppressed their slaves. So God punished them. So in the Old Testament, We see God give instructions to his people on how they were to participate in the institution of slavery. And God demanded that slaves were treated with equal dignity and they were not oppressed. But we do not see a specific text that offers a clear and direct repudiation of the institution of slavery in the Old Testament. And to be honest with you, we're going to see the same in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see all kinds of instructions to slaves and masters on how they are to conduct themselves in a godly way while participating in this. But no one specific text that offers a clear and direct repudiation. So Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 to 9 is a good example. Here's what it says. It says, bond servants, slaves, that word doulos, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them. Stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Again, the New Testament commands that slaves are treated with equal dignity and not oppressed, but there's no repudiation. As we read, the Bible judges the morality of this idea of slavery based off of the conduct and intentions of the master. But even with that said, I know I have not really comforted us or anyone in answering the question if the Bible condones the institution of slavery. Because based on a quick read and honest read of the text, it seems that the Bible does condone slavery. Sure, it may put some qualifications in regard to the conduct and intentions of the master, but does that really make it better? What does the Bi- uh, why, I'm sorry, why does the Bible just not clearly come out and say that the very idea of one person being owned by and living their life serving another person is just wrong. Well, first of all, one thing we must understand is that the institution of slavery was very different in the first century compared to what we think of today in regard to slavery. When I think of slavery today, I think of our country's history with slavery where a particular ethnic group was unjustly, inhumanely, and forcibly removed from their home, shipped across the Atlantic across the, uh, against their will, and forced into a brutal kind of slavery where they had no rights. Or we might think of the fact that there's more slaves in the world today than ever before in history in the form of sex slaves and child laborers across the world. I think the Bible does clearly, directly repudiate any kind of slavery that was oppressive. In the first century, slavery was based on economic class and not ethnicity or the color of your skin. There were people forced into slavery as a result of war. 
But many slaves voluntarily sold themselves into this kind of occupation as a way of economically surviving. And although I am very sure that there were many slave masters who were abusive and oppressive to their slaves, there were also slave masters who treated their slaves with equal dignity, did not oppress their workers, and allowed this to be an opportunity for them to work and make a living. So in the first century, compared to the kind of slavery that went on in our country's history, freedom was not always a good thing for the slave because freedom often meant poverty and homelessness. So what we see in the New Testament especially is a call for slave masters to be the kind of slave masters that treated their slaves with dignity and cared well for them. But even with the historical context... And the understanding that this kind of slavery was different from the enslavement of Africans in our country, does it still make it better? Again, it still seems the Bible condones the institution of slavery, even if it was a softer form of slavery that did not discriminate based on ethnicity and was not or was supposed to not be oppressive. Okay, so here, here's what we've done so far. All right, remember, the, the point of the sermon today is to use this topic of slavery to teach how we are to read our Bibles correctly, okay? So here's what we've done so far. We've done a word study to discover how the Bible uses these words for servant and slavery. Uh, and through that study, we've determined that the Bible judges the morality of these words based on the conduct and intentions of the master, Okay, we've done an overview of the many texts that specifically refer to the institution of slavery, We discovered that no one passage offers a clear and direct repudiation of the institution of slavery, if we're honest. We've just seen a repudiation of an oppressive system of slavery. We've thought about the historical context a bit and ensured that we weren't reading our own historical context into the Bible. What more is there to do? Do we have an answer to our question? Does the Bible condone the institution of slavery? So it's right here, now that we have all of our data, where it's time to do some biblical theology. All right, say it with me again. Say biblical theology. Thank you, thank you. When I say that we are going to do biblical theology, what I mean is that we are going to see how the unfolding story of God's redemption in the Bible helps us to interpret these texts and apply them appropriately. Okay, so the Bible begins at creation in the garden. And in the garden, we were slaves of God. Now, I know that sounds odd. When we hear the word slavery, we automatically think oppression. But this was not an oppressive kind of slavery. We as humans were under the care and authority of God Almighty. We are not our own, but we belong to our God. But while in the garden, we sought independence and freedom from God. We believed the lie that freedom from God would mean that we would flourish and God was actually oppressing us through his word. And so God grants our desire. He removes us from the garden and separates himself from us. But freedom is not what we got. When we rejected God as our master, we voluntarily enslaved ourselves to a truly oppressive master. We enslaved ourselves to sin. 
We enslaved ourselves to fear and anxiety, to mortality, pain, and death. See, in God's creation, we're all enslaved to something. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We all live our lives for something, whether it be God or money or fame, the approval of others, happiness. And whatever we live our lives for, that is our master. So in rejecting God as our master, we voluntarily enslaved ourselves to another, more oppressive master. But our God shows us the heart of a truly benevolent master. Although he created us to be under his good and right authority, and although we revolted and demanded freedom from him, he still came after us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God sends his son Jesus to rescue us from our slavery to sin, and here is how he does it. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. Jesus is talking to his disciples And he says this, he goes, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the other nations, lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. There's our word diakonos. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. There's our word doulos. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, our true master becomes our servant so that we may be rescued from our sin, be reconciled to God, and we can go back to the joyful life of God being our master. Did you catch that? In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the master becomes the servant. Jesus comes and gives his own life as a sacrifice for our sins so that our sins may be forgiven and we could be made right with God. Our master, the king of kings and the Lord of lords does this for us. He gets on his knees and washes our feet. He allows his body to be broken. He allows his blood to be shed so that we might be set free from our slavery to sin. In the gospel, the master becomes the servant. And so when we use biblical theology and apply it to this topic of slavery in the Bible, what we see is a pattern. What we see is a biblical theology of the use of authority and a biblical theology of the master-servant relationship. That emerges And we need to use that to interpret these various texts that we're reading about slavery. So when Paul commands masters to treat their slaves as Christ would treat them in Ephesians 6, Paul is not just talking about their conduct. He is commanding them to be the kind of master that Jesus Christ is to us as demonstrated in the gospel. The master becomes the servant. And I think where we see this biblical theology practically applied in the Bible is the book of Philemon. 
Philemon is a small letter written by Paul uh, to Philemon, who was a member of the church in Colossae. Philemon was a master, and he had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus had fled from Philemon's house and found his way to the apostle Paul, who was in prison in Rome. And while Onesimus was with Paul, he had come to faith in Christ. And so what Paul's doing is he's writing a letter to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, the slave. And Paul tells Philemon, he is sending Onesimus back to him, but he tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back. Here it goes, verses 16 and 19. Receive Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant, as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, Paul's saying, if you consider me, Paul, your partner, Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. What we see Paul do here is demonstrate a Christ-like pattern of the master-servant relationship. Paul has authority over Philemon in his apostleship and also Onesimus. And we see Paul use his authority to serve those underneath him. He is willing to give of his own resources so that Onesimus might be free from any obligation, and Paul urges Philemon to do the same by receiving Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother who's free. See, a proper biblical theology of the use of authority helps us to see that any time someone is given authority in this world, that authority is to be used in such a way to serve those under your authority. Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the master becomes the servant. So let's just veer away for a second from this topic of slavery. We'll come back to it. But all of us will be given authority over someone in our lifetime. You might be parents with authority over your children. You might have employees at your job that report to you. Volunteers that serve on your team, students in your classroom, church members under your care, whatever it is, if you have any authority, whether big or small, you as a Christ follower are called to use that authority to serve those under your authority. You, as the master, must become the servant. So if you have children... God has called you to use your authority over your children to serve your children that they may flourish in this life. Your job as a parent is to be a servant, not to be served. Husbands, the Bible says that you are the head of your household and that your wife, your wife and your children must submit to you. It's widely unpopular nowadays to say that. That's not an endorsement of oppressive patriarchy. This isn't a privilege that you get to enjoy by being served. No, this is a responsibility that God has put on you to become the servant of your household. This means you're the first to give up your rights so that your family may thrive. 
This means you're the first to give up what you wanna spend money on so that your family can flourish. You're the first to give up what you wanna do on the weekend so your family can enjoy the weekend. You're the first to give of your life as Christ gave of his for ours for your family. That's what it means to be a head of the household and to carry authority. It doesn't mean you get to be served. It means you serve. You wake up every day thinking, how am I going to serve my family today so that they may thrive and all the needs that I have, I'm going to entrust to my master who's in heaven. That's what it means to be a head of a household. Do you have employees that report to you at work? A Christ follower who carries authority in the workplace uses that authority to serve those underneath them. So what that means as someone who has employees is you go to work every day not concerned about your career. You go to work every day concerned about their career. How is their career going to thrive? How are they going to go up the ladder? How are you going to develop them? How are you going to serve them and make them better for being under your leadership? How are you going to make sure that they love their job and they love their boss because he cares for them? That's how a Christ follower uses their authority. They use their authority to serve, not to be served. Don't go to work every day worried about your career. Entrust that to your master in heaven. Go to work every day worried about theirs and let them flourish. Because that's the biblical pattern of the use of authority, no matter what authority you have. See, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful anti-slavery force in the world because it transforms how we use authority. And the proper application of the commands to slave masters in the New Testament are for those masters to wield their authority over their servants in the same way that Christ would. So do I believe that it was sinful to be a slave owner in the first century? I'm not an expert on the historical context of all of it. From what I know, I do think that someone could be a slave owner without sinning in the first century, provided that that person used their authority so that their slaves might thrive in life. And what I mean by flourish is work themselves to a place where they could economically support themselves while free. So I think the slave owner would have to work to serve their slave for them to be free and thrive. Do I believe that it was sinful to be a slave owner in early America? Without question. That type of slavery was entirely oppressive, entirely evil. It targeted one ethnic group, and those people were forced into that slavery against their will. The only way, the only way, and this might be a stretch, that I think I could see a slave owner doing this without sinning in early America is if they just used their money to purchase slaves for the express purpose of having the authority to set them free so that they would not be oppressed in that system. See, the Bible is anti-slavery because the Bible has no category for the use of authority for selfish purposes. No category for that. 
A proper biblical theology of the use of authority is demonstrated to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ where the master becomes the servant. And this is why in the letter to Philemon, we see this kind of direct application of Paul using his authority so that Onesimus might flourish and be set free. And so this morning, I hope we have a a few takeaways from this. First, I hope we can all walk away challenged to use whatever authority God has given us as a call to serve. If you have authority in any place in your life, what that means as a Christ follower is you have been given a responsibility to become a servant. See, our world thinks of authority as this is an opportunity to be served. In God's kingdom, having authority means it's an opportunity to serve. That's what Christ demonstrates to us. Second, I hope this was a helpful lesson in how the unity of the Bible as one story about God's redemption is the lens through which we must read and interpret the Bible. We must view every single passage through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every passage is a part of that story. Every passage is informed by that story. And when we read the Bible with proper biblical theology, what we see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful anti-slavery force in the world. It is imperative that we demonstrate that in our own lives with whatever authority we carry in any place in life. And it's also imperative that we evangelize our nation and beyond because only the gospel has the power to transform the oppressor. Lastly, I hope you're encouraged this morning that your master in heaven, Jesus Christ, came to serve and not to be served and to give his life for you, to rescue you, to give his life as a ransom so that your sins could be forgiven. Listen, in Matthew 28, Jesus declares that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And what Jesus has done with that authority is he has used it to rescue you and to free you from your slavery to sin. And I hope this morning that you are deeply encouraged by that. So let me pray and let's praise God for that truth. Father, this morning, I know that we tackled a a difficult topic in the Bible. But Lord, I, I pray that as we look at the scriptures and we see how it unfolds, one unified story that, Lord, all of us would just have our hearts and our minds enlightened to how that informs every single piece of the Bible and To that matter, every part of our life. Lord, we believe that your word is sufficient to guide and direct us in every single life circumstance. And I pray, Lord, that that truth would be encouraging to us this morning. Open our eyes to the gospel. Open our eyes to the amazing grace of the gospel where you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, came to serve. If anyone had the right to come to be served, it was you, God. But you show a different way. 
You show a different way in your kingdom versus the kingdom of this world. And in that way, the master becomes the servant. And Lord, help us to live that out in our lives. Lord, help us to have renewed eyes when it comes to our kids. Help us to wake up every day and see them as people that we have been called to serve. Not for selfish gain, not for a pat on the back, but Lord, just because we love them. Lord, help us to use our authority as parents over our kids to serve and love them and help them flourish in life. Lord, I pray for the husbands in the room that they would love their families and serve their families sacrificially, not to be served, but to serve, knowing that their joy is not found in being able to do what they want to do, but their joy is found in Christ. Lord, I pray if there's people in here who have employees at work, Lord, would you give them just new eyes to see those employees as people whether they are difficult or not difficult, whether they're good workers or bad workers, whatever it is, help them to have new eyes to see them as people they have been called to serve, to demonstrate Christ to them. Help them to go to work every day, concerned about how they are going to make their work environment the greatest. Lord, I pray for any of us, any authority that we carry, that we would demonstrate the mind of Christ. And we praise you for what Christ has done for us in giving his life for us, Lord. I pray that as we end this time worshiping you, that you would be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.